If you would, please take your Bibles and turn with me to uh, Colossians uh, chapter 2. So we continue in the uh, book of Colossians tonight. We'll be in Colossians 2. Um, I'll read verses 1 through 5, but really we're just going to be focusing on verse 5 tonight of Colossians chapter 2. So we're in Colossians 2, and we'll read beginning in verse 1 down through verse 5. Paul writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he says, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf and for those who are at Laodicea, for all those who have not personally seen my face, that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mercy, that is, Christ himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge." I say this so that no one will delude you with persuasive argument. For even though I am absent in body, nevertheless I am present with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ. Now, as we've been working our way through the the book of Colossians, we've seen how Paul is calling upon these Christians to hold fast to the foundation on which they have been established namely the Lord Jesus Christ, so as to prevent them from falling under the sway of false teaching that was coming their way. And he's doing this by reminding them afresh of the the glories of Christ and the truth of the gospel, so that, as he says here in verse 4, no one will delude you by persuasive argument. And now he goes on to praise them in verse 5 for how things currently stand among them. He says, For even though I am absent in body, nevertheless I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ. Now I think it's difficult to know precisely what all is intended when he says that though absent from them in the body, he is with them in the spirit. But it is noteworthy that when he speaks of his knowledge of their good order and their stable faith, he says that he sees it. Rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ. And I think it is certainly possible that inasmuch as Paul's charge as an apostle gave him concern over all the churches, that Paul was, by the Spirit, perhaps given a supernatural knowledge of their current condition in a way not unlike that of Elijah of old in 2 Kings chapter 5 when uh, Jehazi had, had gone out after Naaman. You remember Naaman had offered Elijah, hey, what, what do you want me to give you now that I've been healed from, from leprosy? And Elisha said, don't, you, know, you don't have to give us a thing. And then Jehazi, Elisha's servant, got greedy and he went after him and asked for some money and some clothing. And when he came back, Elisha said to his servant, this is 2 Kings 5, 25 and 26, he said, where have you been, Jehazi? And he said, your servant went nowhere. Then he said to him, did not my heart go with you when the man turned from his chariot to meet you? Is it a time to receive money and to receive clothes and olive groves and vineyards and sheep and oxen and male and female servants? So uh, certainly in that context, Elisha had a supernatural revelation of a situation for which he was not personally present. Certainly possible that that kind of thing is going on here with the Apostle Paul. But at the end of the day, one way or the other, Paul knows the condition of these Christians. He saw their good discipline and the stability of their faith in Christ. Now, 
Let's break this down and consider why this would be important for the church at Colossae in the circumstances that they were facing. Paul says that he saw their good discipline or their order. Now, the word that is used there is a word that was used to signify military order and denotes a compact body of soldiers marshaled in due order. And thus there was something about the Colossians that was disciplined and orderly. The kind of order that would make the Apostle Paul rejoice would be an orderliness and a discipline that operated both on the individual level and also at the corporate level. As John Davenant expressed it, he says, When therefore he praises their order, he intimates this, that they individually walk soberly, righteously, and godly in their vocation, Moreover, public discipline is also to be included under this term as what promotes and preserves it. For this teaches bishops to rule well, subjects to obey duly, and compels the negligent and the refractory to perform their duty. So there's, there's good order, good discipline. And again, this occurs at both the individual level and at a broader corporate level. Level. And so at the individual level, good discipline or order would signify that such a person is living a consistent and all-around faithful Christian life. This would include faithfulness in one's calling, faithfulness at work, faithfulness at home, faithfulness at school, faithfulness as a Christian in one's family relationships, whether as a son, a daughter, a husband, a wife, a father, a mother, Husbands or heads of households should be raising up those entrusted to their care in the nurture and admonition of the Lord and providing physically for the needs of their families. This includes husbands loving their wives, wives respecting their husbands. This means children obeying their parents in the Lord. Orderliness at an individual level also would include faithfulness to the church, not neglecting the assembling of ourselves together, not neglecting the worship of God or the word of God but receiving it with reverence and submitting to it. Much more could be said, but I think, I think we get the idea that orderliness or good discipline would include all-around faithful Christian living. Now, speaking to a situation contrary to this, Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 3, 6 and 7, he says, Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life, or more literally, walks disorderly. It's the same, uh, same term used here, only in the negative, walks disorderly, and not according to the tradition which you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example, because we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you. And in 2 Thessalonians 3, the cases that Paul seemed to have in mind were those who had ceased to work and are no longer supporting themselves, no longer supporting their families, if they had families, had turned into busybodies, more or less. And I think it's helpful as we, as we think about that command there in 2 Thessalonians 3 about uh, keeping away from those who lead an unruly life or who walk disorderly. I think we need to remember that there's a difference between a single disorder versus a disorderly walk. And uh, John Gill, I think, was helpful in, in speaking of that distinction. And he said that not, uh, this is not for every disorder that one may be guilty of, but that it's one thing to be guilty of a disorder. It's another thing to walk disorderly. 
because walking signifies a way, a course, a series of disorders becoming worse and worse, continuing to go down a given path. And so there's, there's a difference then between a single disorder and a disorderly walk. And so, again, there's this orderliness or good discipline that exists for us as individual Christians. We are to walk and live, leave, lead our lives in an orderly manner. And then there is also an orderliness and good discipline that exists at the corporate level, at the, the level of the local church. And we, we see this in Scripture. And uh, in speaking of corporate order, we need to keep a couple of distinctions in mind because on the one hand, there are some things with respect to church order and governance and so on that, are, that can be somewhat flexible in regard to time and place. And so let me just give you some examples For instance, there's no particular command in Scripture that requires a church to have a certain number of elders or a certain number of deacons. No place in Scripture that requires two-year terms for elders and deacons. There is no place in Scripture that requires Robert's Rules of Order to be employed in a church meeting. No Scripture that requires a two-thirds majority in church business meeting as opposed to a 50.5 majority or 75% or 90%. And one could say uh, the same with respect to scheduling Lord's Day morning services at 10.45 as opposed to 10 o'clock or 11 o'clock. Having Sunday school and Wednesday evening Bible studies that are of a more interactional nature. You, you see what I mean? There is a, a role for a certain amount of human wisdom and custom in some of these things, so long as that human wisdom and custom in these things is not contrary to Scripture, and so long as they are understand, understood to be what they are, namely, wisdom and custom as distinguished from the Word of God. In matters like these, the general commandments of 1 Corinthians 14 apply. And so Paul says, 1 Corinthians 14, 26, let all things be done for edification, and 1 Corinthians 14.40, but all things must be done properly and in order. But, on the other hand, there are those things which are expressly commanded by God in regard to how the church is to be organized and how it is to function. Think 1 Timothy 3.15, where Paul says to Timothy, But in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. And so in 1 Timothy and the other pastoral epistles, there are instructions pertaining to that very thing, how one is to conduct himself in the house of God. There are requirements for the characteristics of elders, characteristics of deacons, 1 Timothy 3. There are instructions with respect to prayer, 1 Timothy 2, 1 and 2, 1 Timothy 2, 8. With respect to modesty, 1 Timothy 2, 9 and 10. With respect to uh, women not exercising authority over men or teaching men, 1 Timothy 2, 11 and 12, with respect to giving attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching, 1 Timothy 4, 13, with respect to paying elders, 1 Timothy 5, 17 and 18, with respect to receiving charges against elders, 1 Timothy 5, 19, with respect to not ordaining a man too hastily, 1 Timothy 5, 22, and if we loop in the other pastoral epistles, we find things like 2 Timothy 4.2, where Paul says, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with great patience and instruction. You find Titus 2.15, 1 
These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. If we look more broadly in Scripture, we find rules concerning Christ's church, like in regard to church discipline, Matthew 18. Uh, there's the command of Hebrews 13:17, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. Now, obviously more could be said, but I trust you see the point, that our Lord has given us some rules as to how we are to conduct ourselves in his household. And then beyond those things that are explicitly required in Scripture, there is an allowance, and I would say even a requirement that we use prudence and wisdom and human custom to fill in around the edges with the goal of ensuring that all things are done to edification, that all things are done decently and in order. And so just to, just to give an example, when the, uh, when the Reformation church order for the German territory of Braunschweig Wolfenbüttel was instituted in 1569, the authors of that church order, Martin Chemnitz and Jacob Andrea, wanted to clearly mark out the distinction between the biblical requirements on the one hand and human custom on the other hand. And so they said, in the discussion of church ceremonies, which are done and used when and where the church of God gathers together for the administration of the word and sacrament and for general prayer, what God himself has especially instituted, ordered, and commanded with expressed words must be diligently distinguished from other precepts and order which are prescribed. For what God himself has expressly ordained and commanded is the most important thing upon which everything else depends. But with human precepts and orders in the church, there is a completely different view. For such things are in no way to be esteemed and regarded as equal to, much less more exalted and highly esteemed, and regarded than what God himself has expressly ordained and commanded in his word. Rather, they exist in Christian freedom to this end only, that in the church God's command may be accomplished decently, in order, and for building up. 1 Corinthians 14. And so these men wanted to be clear that there is a distinction between the word of God and human precepts, and at the same time they're not saying throw every human precept and custom out the window because they were just getting ready to give a way of organizing the church that they thought would be helpful and edifying in their context. Now, I realize by, by this point you might be thinking, wait a minute now, where's, where's all of this going? What about, what about Colossians chapter 2? Well, stick with me. Let's, let's think this through. Here in Colossians 2, Paul rejoices over the good order of these Christians. As we've seen, there's an individual component to this. There's a corporate component to this. The individual component is that of faithful and consistent Christian living. The corporate level is good order with respect to functioning and being organized in such a way as to conform to the explicit commands of Scripture and then functioning with good order for the purpose of edification and love in regard to those things that are not clearly spelled out in Scripture. Now, why would, why would this matter? Why would any of this be important? Why would Paul rejoice? He says, I rejoice to see your good order and discipline. Well, think, think of it in this way, that good order is conducive to victory. Good order is conducive to victory. Now, I've never served in the military, but many of you have. And isn't this true, that good order is conducive to victory. 
at the individual level, when your soldiers or Marines land on the beach or parachute in, you want everyone to have what they need in working order. You want a rifle that shoots, you want extra ammo where you can reach it. You want every man to have what he needs to have in combat and to have it in working order. And then at the corporate level, those soldiers, those Marines, need to know how to function as a unit, how to work together to accomplish the task at hand with each performing his particular part. They need to know how to follow those who are leading the way, and those who are leading the way need to do so with courage and with skill. When all of those things are in place, the resulting situation on the ground will be much more conducive to victory than a situation that would result if when the men hit the beach, half of them didn't have guns and the other half, only half of the ones who had guns, had guns that worked. And no one thought about bringing extra ammo. And no one knew who was in charge, no one knew what the orders were, no one knew where they were supposed to go. It would be a different situation if you had leaders who were simply foolish and wrong and didn't rise to the level of the occasion and didn't lead at all. You, you see what I mean? And I think that there is something for us to draw from this analogy. When Paul rejoices in the good order of the Colossian church, he sees something among them that is helpful and conducive to victory, given the attack that was coming their way from those who would bring in false teaching. And uh, this same thing applies to the second thing that Paul says there. Uh, he says, I rejoice to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ. Stability of faith, just like good order and discipline, is conducive to victory. If one is stable in their faith, that is going to be conducive to standing firm during a period of false teaching or during a time of trial. The opposite of stability of faith is the wavering of faith that Paul gives us a glimpse of in Ephesians 4.14, where he speaks of children tossed here and there by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness in deceitful scheming. This was the kind of thing that was starting to break upon the Colossian church as they had these men who were deceitfully scheming, seeking craftily to bring in another message. And Paul says here of the Colossians that they have stability with regard to their faith in Christ. And so Paul sees this, this good order and this stability of their faith, and it gives him cause for rejoicing, because these people were doing exactly what they were supposed to be doing. They were walking faithfully with the Lord. They were doing these things and pursuing these paths that were conducive to victory. And even so... May it be the same with us. And so by the grace of God, let's all seek then to live orderly Christian lives, faithfully fulfilling our calling and our places, just as God has assigned us. Let's fulfill those callings, our callings in the world, our calling in our families, our calling in our place of employment or education, our place as citizens in society. And then let's seek to be orderly at the corporate level. Let's for one, seek to be submissive to the elders of the church. And I don't say that as an elder just to you. I say that to me too. When I was installed as a pastor, I took a vow in your presence, as many of you as were here, that I would submit to my fellow elders in the Lord. And that doesn't mean that elders are infallible, but just like parents, they do have a position of authority. Let's likewise seek to fulfill the covenant 
which we have entered into as members of the church, where we commit to walking together in brotherly love as becomes the members of a Christian church. Let's gather with the church when she gathers, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. Let's hear the word of God together. Let's pray together, pray for one another. Let's worship together. Let's love and care for one another. This also includes being willing to have hard conversations when those are called for, as we seek to faithfully admonish and entreat one another as occasion may require, which is, again, straight out of our church covenant. Let's pour into one another's lives, both in terms of service and also in terms of spiritual investment, investing in one another so that we may together all be built up in Christ. And let's also seek, by God's grace, that stability of faith, which Paul praises here, so that we're not being blown around by the winds of falsehood, but such that we are firmly established in Christ and continually growing up into him who is the head, continually growing in the grace and knowledge of Christ. This is the path that is pleasing to the Lord, and this is the way to stand strong together in times of false doctrine and error. This is the way to stand strong during times of trouble persecution, or whatever hardship may come our way. The way to stand strong is to stand orderly as individuals and orderly together as a compact unit, the Church of Christ. One could sum up the situation, I think, using Paul's words in Philippians 1, and 28, where he says, Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm, in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. May it be so with us. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask that you would help us, because we know that we are prone to disorder, that we are prone to be unstable in our faith. And so, Lord, we ask that you would strengthen us, that you would, would help us, that, we, that we'd, we would be well-disciplined as individuals, well-disciplined corporately as a church, that we uh, would be faithful, that we would walk together uh, with you, loving and serving, caring for one another. And Father, we, uh, we pray that you would strengthen us, that we would be stable in Christ, continually growing up into Christ our head in all things and not blown about by winds and waves, but that we would be strengthened. And we recognize our great need for your grace in these things. We also recognize that you are a gracious God, and that you give these good gifts to those who ask. And so we ask, expecting to receive. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.